A smart old guy once said, and I paraphrase, if you don't want your enemies knowing your secrets, then don't share them with your friends. That was Benjamin Franklin, who obviously had a well-developed sense of privacy himself, as did his friends, the framers of the Constitution, when they went on to add the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. And that is the one that bars the government from searching our houses and from going through our stuff without a good reason and without a warrant. But none of those framer guys really foresaw this world of the Internet and mobile phones and the government's present practice of sweeping up huge amounts of data from both of these sources on us. And the question is, does that violate the framers' intent? What would Ben Franklin say about all of this? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, arguing for and against this motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Our debate goes in three rounds, and then the live audience here in Philadelphia will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Again, our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to argue for the motion, let's first meet debater team number one, the four side, and debater number one, please welcome Alex Abdo. Uh, and Alex, um, just a little biography on you. You're a staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, you are involved in the ACLU's lawsuit against the NSA's uh, phone record program. In June of 2013, pertinent to your case, it was revealed that Verizon uh, was required to turn phone records over to the NSA. And as it turns out, your outfit, the ACLU, is a Verizon customer. So my question is, does this now mean you all switch massively to AT&T or Sprint? What happens? No, we're we're still Verizon customers, and I don't think we could escape the NSA that easily. But uh, it's one of the reasons why we had a minor cause to celebrate at the ACLU, because we could finally prove that the NSA is collecting our records, uh, which is allowing us to have our day in court. It was a good thing then. I I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Alex Abdo. And who is your partner? I'm joined by the illustrious Supreme Court and constitutional law expert, Elizabeth Wydra. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Wydra. Elizabeth, welcome. You are also arguing for the motion that mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. You're chief counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. That's a a think tank and a law firm. Um, and an action center whose mission is to, quote, fulfill the progressive promise of our Constitution's text and history. And I'm just wondering, since we're here in Philadelphia, about two blocks from where the Constitution was drafted, does that give you a bit of an exciting jolt? Oh, yes. I think it's fabulous. You know, I don't know if it's because I was christened on the 4th of July in the bicentennial year, or maybe my (laughs) mother read a lot of American history while she was pregnant with me, but since birth, I've always been very inspired by the work of those Framer guys. You sound like a total ringer with the July 4th birthday. (laughs) I know, right? I'm a lucky girl. The team arguing for the motion, ladies and gentlemen. And that motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. We have two debaters arguing against this motion. Please first welcome Stuart Baker. Good to see you. Stuart, you're a partner at the law firm Steptoe & Johnston. Uh, You were, you've got some pretty good credentials in terms of this issue. You were Homeland Security's first Assistant Secretary for Policy. You've also served as General Counsel at the NSA. That was back in the 90s, uh, before we had this 
massive amount of internet and cell phone data. On the whole, is having that amount of data more of a curse or more of a blessing? It's a blessing, but a mixed blessing, I think, uh, for all of us, right? Uh, yeah. We all uh, like the stuff, and we worry about the cost. But you're not shy about the internet. You have your own podcast? I do, every week. If you, if you have not gotten enough of my views after tonight, you can uh, subscribe and get them every week. What's it called? It's the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. You got about 400,000 new fans now. Terrific. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. And Stuart, your partner is? Is the only man uh, in America who gets more hate mail on this issue than I do, John Yu. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, John Yu. John Yu, you're arguing against this motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Uh, you were two years at the Justice Department. Right after September 11th, uh, you authored a series of controversial memos uh, on the Geneva Conventions and enhanced interrogation. But now... You're a professor at law at Berkeley, the University of California at Berkeley, which is somewhat caricatured as a liberal stronghold, I would say. So is, how, how does that work for you? Well, I, I enjoy the company of liberals from time to time. <laughs> oh, they're not as bad as everyone says. They uh, have nice views from their houses, and they cook pretty good food, and they make wonderful handmade items <laughs> for sale at gift shops. I love, liberal. I love living amongst liberals. I, I, I would dread to live in a conservative city. I never have. I don't know what it would be like. There would be right. no fun there. So it sounds like you've worked something out. Ladies and gentlemen, John Yu and the team arguing against the motion. So this is a debate. It's a contest. These uh, debaters, these two teams are arguing to persuade you of the rightness of their stance on our motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And the way that we judge the winner in this debate is by your vote, our live audience here in Philadelphia, by the time the debate's ended, we have had you vote twice, once before and once after the debate. And I want to point out, victory for us is the team whose numbers have moved the most between the two votes in percentage point terms. So let's go to the first, the preliminary vote. If you go to those keypads at your seat, just pay attention to keys number one, two, and three. You can ignore the others. They're not live. And uh, if you are in support of this motion, as it now stands, as you come in off the street with this team, push number one. If you are against this motion as you come on off the street with this team, push number two. And if you're undecided, which is a perfectly reasonable position, uh, push number three. And if you push the wrong button, just correct yourself, and uh, the system will lock in your last vote. And uh, we'll finish this in about 15 seconds. Anybody need more time? It looks good. All right, we're going to lock that out. On to round one. Round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. They will be six minutes each, uninterrupted. Our motion is this. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to argue for the motion, Alex Abdo. He is a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberty Union's, he is a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberty Union's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project and counsel in the ACLU's lawsuit challenging the NSA's phone records program. Ladies and gentlemen, Alex Abdo. Thank you, John. I'm honored to be here tonight to discuss the mass collection of Americans' phone records, but before I get into the program, I think it's critical to recognize that tonight's debate is not just about phone records and is not just about the NSA. This is a debate about the kind of society we want to live in. Do we want to live in a country in which our government routinely spies on hundreds of millions of Americans who have done nothing wrong? 
or we prefer to live in a country that's true to our vision, to the vision of our nation's founders, who believe that the government should, as a general matter, leave us alone unless it has cause to invade our privacy. I think our founders got it right, and I hope you'll agree, which is why you should vote for the resolution. Mass collection of our phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Here's what it looks like to live in a society of mass surveillance. Every time you place or receive a call, the government knows who you talk to, when the call started, and how long it lasted. The government knows every time you called your doctor and which doctor you called, which family members you stay in touch with and which you don't, and which pastor, rabbi, or imam you talked to and for how long you spoke. The government knows whether, how often, and precisely when you called the abortion clinic, the local Alcoholics Anonymous, your psychiatrist, your ex-boyfriend, a criminal defense attorney, or the suicide hotline. If you called someone today, by tomorrow morning, the government will have a record of that call. It will keep that record for the next five years, and it is doing the same for every one of your calls and every one of the calls of millions of other innocent Americans. This program is the most sweeping surveillance operation ever undertaken in the United States. And it is unconstitutional for the simple reason that the Fourth Amendment does not allow dragnet surveillance. As my partner Elizabeth will explain in a few minutes, dragnet surveillance, in fact, was the principal evil that the Fourth Amendment was designed to prevent. And for good reason. Dragnet surveillance intrudes on the most fundamental of liberties in a free and democratic society, to be left alone by our government absent good cause. The phone records program breaks that promise. It places the entire country under surveillance without any suspicion. It threatens our ability to communicate freely without having to worry that the government is looking over our shoulders. It discourages journalist sources from coming forward, knowing as they now do that every, every one of their calls is being documented in a government database. And it causes ordinary Americans to hesitate before calling individuals or organizations that they would rather not have as a part of their permanent record on file with the NSA. Now, our opponents will attempt to minimize the NSA program's intrusiveness and exaggerate its effectiveness. They will argue that the Fourth Amendment does not protect our phone records, that there are protections in place for our privacy under the program, and that the program is necessary for our national security. All of those arguments are wrong. First, our phone records, especially when they are collected in bulk, are extraordinarily sensitive. They reveal all of your associations, personal, professional, medical, all of them. In fact, your phone records can be every bit as sensitive as the content of your phone calls. If you call someone other than your spouse routinely at one in the morning, you don't have to know what's said in order to know what's going on. And if a government employee calls a reporter a dozen times before news breaks of an illegal government operation, again, the call pattern tells the story. Our phone records are, in other words, a proxy for the content of our calls. Our opponents will say that the Supreme Court has already decided that phone records are not protected by the Constitution. This argument is based on a Supreme Court case from 1979 called Smith v. Maryland. But that case involved collection for several days of an individual criminal suspect's phone records. The NSA's program, in contrast, involves the indefinite surveillance of millions of innocent Americans. Our opponents will say that these differences don't matter, but it's truly bizarre to define the boundaries of privacy in the digital age on the basis of a legal opinion issued before the Internet as we know it was created, an opinion that many Supreme Court justices have already said is ill-suited to the digital era. Second, the privacy protections that our opponents will focus on are a red herring. Those restrictions are weak, they can be violated, and they already have been thousands of times. But more importantly, under our opponents' theory, the Constitution simply does not apply to our phone records. 
This means that the government could collect them without any of the supposed privacy protections that they will describe. Another fatal flaw in this argument is that the government's collection of our phone records violates our privacy even if there are restrictions in place for their later use. The collection itself is a violation. For that reason, we don't let the NSA keep a copy of every single email sent in the country so long as there are protections in place on the back end. And we don't allow the NSA to put a video camera in our bedrooms so long as it promises not to press play unless it has a good enough reason. Third, bulk collection has not made us any safer. Virtually every independent review of the NSA's phone records program has concluded that it hasn't stopped any terrorist attacks and that the government can track down terrorists without bulk collection by issuing targeted requests to the phone companies. A congressional review group said this, that after studying the NSA's classified evidence, it could not, quote, identify a single instance involving a threat to the United States in which the telephone records program made a concrete difference. A separate presidential group came to the same conclusion, and the president himself has now agreed. One final point. Tonight's resolution is focused on phone records, but don't be fooled. The consequences are much, much broader. If the Fourth Amendment permits the bulk collection of our phone records, then it would permit the bulk collection of other similar records. The problem is that virtually everything we do today leaves a digital trail of some sort. Whenever you send an email, visit a website, use your credit card, or even just walk around with your phone turned on, you are leaving a rich trail of digital breadcrumbs in your wake. The arguments our opponents will make tonight would expose all of that information to routine bulk collection by the government. That's not the world that our framers envisioned when they drafted the Fourth Amendment, and it's not the world that you should accept. You should vote for the motion. The mass collection of our phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Thank you. Thank you, Alex Abdo. And that is our motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to argue against the motion, Stuart Baker. He is a partner at Steptoe and Johnson and former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. Ladies and gentlemen, Stuart Baker. Uh, that's an applause line. Thank you. It's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here uh, for the Intelligence Squared uh, debates. These are among the most civil and thoughtful uh, public engagements on uh, issues that uh, I'm familiar with uh, in the current world, in a world where civility is often in short supply. So it's a pleasure to be here. Um, but I have to say that uh, while Alex has uh, anticipated some of my arguments, he's left a few things out. Uh, uh, the question that we're debating is a question of law. Does the Fourth Amendment, is the Fourth Amendment violated by mass collection of phone records? And uh, what he glided over was the, the fact that the Supreme Court has decided this. If this were a true and false question on a constitutional law exam, and you said, yes, the Fourth Amendment is violated by that, you'd get a D because the Supreme Court has decided that these are records that are not protected by the Fourth Amendment because of what Ben Franklin said. If you give away your secrets, they're not yours anymore. Other people get a say in them, and it's not a search when those people make those secrets available. So that is the state of the doctrine. What Alex said is, essentially, he doesn't like it. He wants you not to like it. Uh, but it is the Supreme Court's law ruling. And of the 20 judges that have been asked to evaluate 
the argument that Alex made that uh, uh, somehow uh, the passage of time and the adoption of the Internet uh, means that this, lo- this uh, case is no longer applicable to a mass collection of data. Twenty ca- judges have looked at that, and 19 of them have rejected Alex's argument. He's got one judge who said, yeah, I would just as soon overrule the uh, Supreme Court, but district court judges don't ordinarily get to do that. So the answer to the question, I think, and what I hope you will uh, ultimately decide, is that the Fourth Amendment is not violated by this. Uh, uh, but there's a second aspect of this that I do want to get to, which is, you're probably asking, yeah, but can that be really be the, the right result? And I want to address that, uh, uh, because in the end, if you decide, even if you decide that uh, taking these records is a, a, an event that implicates uh, reasonable expectations of privacy, the question is, is it reasonable for the government to have done what they did? And, and for that, I think we ought to address the question of why the government did this. The biggest terrorist threat we face is some terrorist group well-organized, well-armed with a safe haven that where they can bring people with clean passports together, recruit them, train them, uh, finance them, and then send them into the United States to carry out a coordinated attack uh, without any warning. It's almost impossible for us to catch those plots as they're being trained if there truly is a safe haven. The, our best hope for catching those uh, plotters is that they will have to coordinate, probably by phone, inside the United States and perhaps with their trainers and recruiters back in the Middle East. Uh, And if we can catch those calls back to the Middle East and then tie them up to the uh, calls that that person has made inside the United States, we have at least a fighting chance to roll up that attack before it occurs. That's what what happened in 9-11. We missed that opportunity, and that's what this program was designed to deal with. Uh, They can't, however, pursue the idea that Alex has been uh, offering. Go to each of the phone companies and say, do you have anybody who called these numbers? Give every phone company in America a list of the most sensitive targets, all the terrorist numbers we know in the world, and, and make sure that they hold those in confidence. Very difficult to do. And then once you try to find somebody in the United States by matching up their calls, once you get past the first hop to the first person and you're looking to see whether he had sensitive conversations, you're going back to every phone company in America and asking them about those calls. This is a nightmare. The only way you can actually do this as fast as the terrorists can carry out their plot is if you have them in one place where you can search them. And that is what the government tried to do. They put them in one place so that they could search them. That's a collection. Alex says that fact alone made it unconstitutional and that we're somehow NSA knows when you call your, uh, uh, your girlfriend at one in the morning. Uh, but the fact is it does us no great harm if all that record is sitting on a hard drive in a safe somewhere, and nobody has actually opened up those records to look at. And that's what the government did. They put the protections for privacy not on the collection, but on the question of what are we going to search. And they said you can't search without us. A good reason for searching, a reasonable articulable suspicion, limited people who can do it, lots of audits, uh, uh, no number, no names in this database, only numbers, uh, and the uh, um, number of searches that were performed on an annual basis was about 300. Uh, out of that, they found uh, some suspicious 
patterns, and they referred those about 500 a year to the FBI to find out who these people are and what they're doing. That's the extent of the government's intrusion into privacy at a time when about a million records are gathered under a criminal subpoena. So we have a choice. We can either say, no, the government can never do that because it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, or we can say we want to allow that to happen, but with privacy safeguards. I think the choice, especially at a time when suddenly we have a terrorist group that does have a safe haven, the choice is to choose privacy and security. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart Baker. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. You've heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern Elizabeth Wydra. She is chief counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center and former supervising attorney at the Georgetown University Law Center Appellate Litigation Clinic. Ladies and gentlemen, Elizabeth Wydra. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be here tonight. Now, Stuart certainly presents a frightening picture of terrorists working here in the United States, but he presents a false choice between the idea of securing our nation and remaining faithful to the fundamental values that our nation holds dear as expressed in the Constitution and relevant to tonight, the Fourth Amendment. We can do both. As my partner Alex has ably explained, the NSA has not established that its massive intrusion into the lives of everyday Americans is necessary in order to keep us safe. But while this dragnet surveillance program has not been established as necessary, the importance of protecting against such suspicionless, sweeping searches as those conducted by the NSA is established in our constitutional tradition beyond question. Intrusive searches like the one being conducted every day by the NSA strikes at the very core of what the Fourth Amendment was enacted to prevent. It gets to the very heart of why our nation's founders were willing to lay down their lives if they had to in order to protect the liberty, security, and personal privacy of Americans. So as you listen to our debate tonight, I would ask you to keep in mind the vision and the values of our founders, the reasons why they wrote into our Constitution the Fourth Amendment in the first place. Keep that as your North Star tonight. When the Founding Fathers drafted the Fourth Amendment, the mischief to which they were responding was principally the British use of general warrants or, and writs of assistance, broadly authorized searches that allowed um, British officers to go into the homes of American colonists without any particularized suspicion of wrongdoing, and they were used broadly in the hope that if they went through enough people's stuff, they would find something that would show evidence of wrongdoing. Now, that sounds a little familiar to me today. These generalized searches back then were decried as instruments of arbitrary power. They were used to silence critics of the crown and to trample the personal liberty of the American colonists. In fact, American colonists' opposition to these sorts of generalized searches was, as Chief Justice Roberts explained in a recent Supreme Court decision on behalf of all nine justices on the court applying robust Fourth Amendment protections to the searches of cell phones, 
these, the opposition to these sorts of warrantless generalized searches was one of the driving forces behind the revolution itself. To illustrate, the Chief Justice recounted a famous speech given in 1760s Boston by the patriot James Otis, denouncing the use of warrantless searches, generalized searches without individualized suspicion that invaded American colonists' privacy without probable cause. One young man listening in the audience that day was none other than John Adams. And recounting Otis's speech and the day, Adams described it later as the first scene of the first act of opposition to the arbitrary claims of Great Britain. Then and there, the child independence was born. The need to get a warrant to have reasonable suspicion before invading someone's privacy, that wasn't a mere technicality, something on a checklist that you have to go through that slows down good law enforcement, something that the guys on law and order sort of get past with a wink and a nod. It was something that was so important to our founders that it was an essential part of the struggle for independence. We are no longer in that first act of the great American story. And we are fortunate that we have to guide us today the wisdom and the words of the Constitution. James Otis in the 1760s didn't have the Fourth Amendment to back up his arguments, but fortunately Alex and I do tonight. The text of the Fourth Amendment, which you've seen on the screens, declares the right of the people to be free from unreasonable searches. And it tells the government that it needs to have probable cause before it wants to invade our privacy. The detailed text enshrines a specific prohibition, something that's rather unusual in the Constitution, which often speaks in broader terms, a specific prohibition against the types of suspicionless searches that the NSA is conducting every day on Americans, sweeping searches and surveillance of very private information without any individualized suspicion of wrongdoing. And the wisdom of our founders applies just as much today as it did in the 18th century. I think those framer guys still have a lot to tell us about what kind of society we want to live in, as Alex said. Just because the sensitive private information that we hold, uh, that we hold dear today can be gleaned remotely and electronically, rather than having a British redcoat break the padlock on our leather trunk and our cute brick colonial in Boston, <laughs> As Chief Justice Roberts said, that does not make that information any less worthy of the protection that the founders fought for. Now, the other side will try to say that there isn't a search or there's some exception that uh, makes it reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. But I would submit that any exception to the Fourth Amendment that allows the government to collect data that can reveal sensitive, deeply private information about every American citizen without any suspicion that we are engaged in real wrongdoing, any exception to the amendment that allows that would swallow this most important protection in the Constitution, something that was so important to our founders that it breathed a spark to the fire of revolution. So if you keep as your North Star those founders, I trust that you will vote for the proposition that mass collection of Americans' private records violates the Fourth Amendment. Thank, Thank you, you, Elizabeth Wydra. And that's our motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to argue against that motion, John Yu. He is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at UC Berkeley and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. Ladies and gentlemen, John Yu. 
Thank you uh, very much for that invitation, and uh, it's a real pleasure to return to the National Constitution Center. I'd like to thank uh, Jeff Rosen, an old college and law school cl- a friend of mine, and uh, now the president of this uh, wonderful center, and our worthy opponents who have the misfortune of not being from our great home city of Philadelphia, and so are destined to lose, and my uh, co arguer Stuart Baker, and also the Rosencrantz's uh, family I've known for uh, quite some time. It's a real pleasure to be here under uh, their support. None of that comes out of my time for the debate. <laughs> so, um, and I also want to say it's very likely that I personally will be the worst debater because I'm used to sitting in a faculty lounge and not speaking within a six-minute window. In my classes, it takes about six minutes for me to figure out what cases are being covered in the class that I'm certainly standing in. So I apologize if I don't get to all my points, um, and I don't, as I'm amazed, my colleagues all did finish exactly at zero, 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 zero. I was quite impressed. But I want to just make uh, two important points, uh, three important points. See, I already started. One, uh, from the, what you heard from the other side, you would think that the government was just interested in collecting information about all of us because they're just interested in collecting information about all of us. The most important point is that there's a reason why the government created these programs. It's the one that was present when I was in the government uh, on 9-11 itself, and the reason I was, one of the first things I had to do in the Justice Department was to pass on the legality of what became the uh, surveillance programs. And the reason why is that if you look at the text of the Fourth Amendment, it says we have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. Much of what Ms. Wydra had to say was about British general warrants, and when you get a warrant from a judge to conduct a search of our houses. I think that's an entirely different question than when the government can institute a broad program that doesn't look at the content of our communications, just looks at the addressing information and the phone numbers, and whether it can do that, whether it's a reasonable search given the circumstances. That's how the Supreme Court's interpreted the language, and that's how we should. And those reasonable circumstances, it seems to me, is as my uh, co-panelists argued, on 9-11 we were attacked by a different kind of enemy, not a foreign country, but an enemy that hides and disguises itself as normal civilians that communicates using normal civilian communication methods like the Internet and phone calls to launch surprise attacks with devastating effect on our cities with the goal of killing as many civilians as possible. After 9-11, confronted by this problem, this challenge, we decided this would be a reasonable thing to do to try to find any more terrorists coming to the United States by looking at phone numbers of people from abroad calling into the United States and what those phone numbers called to try to detect patterns of enemy agents trying to infiltrate into the United States. That's the purpose of the program, and I vigorously deny any idea that this is just part of some government dragnet because the government just likes to collect information about all of us just for the fun of it. The government did not do it for that reason, and I was present at that time, and the reason we did it was because we were suffering from the 9-11 attacks. Second point, I want to just point out that I'm sure uh, that our debate points are not often compared uh, to uh, conservatives, but they are the bedfellows of Robert Bork because what they have done is said, I don't care what precedent says. I have discerned the principle of the framers, and I am going to impose it over the democratic choices that we have made in our society today. Throw out Smith versus Maryland, the governing Supreme Court precedent in this area, which every lower court judge to examine this program and similar programs has used as a governing law. 
Throw out the fact that every federal judge to examine these programs at the appellate level and almost all of them at district court level have approved this. Throw out that the president has approved it, the Congress has approved it, and the special FISA court made by federal judges has approved it under the Smith versus Maryland idea. Instead, from the phrases in the Fourth Amendment, I am going to discern this overriding principle that will be imposed on our society. Now, how do they know? that the text of the Fourth Amendment knows us. We have so many debates in constitutional law. Nick Rosencrantz and Jeff Rosen, who you just heard from in the beginning, they can spend six hours arguing about the meaning of the word the in the Constitution. <laughs> right? You probably just saw a little bit of it at the beginning. How do they know that the framers would have disapproved of a collection program that collected phone numbers, didn't listen in on the conversations themselves, but only collected the phone numbers? When people, judges, lawyers who've devoted their lives to trying to figure out what the Constitution means have almost unanimously agreed in their written decisions to approve the constitutionality of this program. So if anyone's a radicals here, it's the people on the other side, Ms. Vajra, Ms. Abdo, Mr. Abdo, who want to throw out all of those decades of cases government understands in favor of their understanding of the Constitution. But suppose you disagree with the Supreme Court. What should you do? Maybe I, as a policy matter, would draw the line between security and privacy somewhere else. We should decide it the way we decide most of the questions in our society. We have elections. We, if you don't like the line that the government has drawn, elect a president and Congress who would draw it differently. This is not a question, I think, as a democracy that we should leave up to five, no offense to the retired people in the audience, superannuated elderly people on the Supreme Court probably don't know how cell phone or smartphone really works. I'm sure have no Facebook or Twitter accounts to let you know about their latest opinions. And so if you really want to change the law here and change what the government do, does, elect different people to Congress. Elect Rand Ball to president. Put, have them put into effect the policies that we want. But that's how our Constitution is designed to work. John Yu, I'm sorry your time is up, and thank you very much. John Yu, ladies and gentlemen. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Now we go on to round two, and round two are where the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you in the audience. Again, this is our motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. We have a team arguing for the motion, Alex Abdo and Elizabeth Wydra. They have painted a picture of a world in which the government knows an enormous amount of, uh, about us because of its ability to skim uh, details about our lives from phone records, uh, places who we called, uh, and as they point out an awful lot of content, real stories about who we are can come out of that information. They make the argument that the opinions governing this, uh, this process that have been relied upon by courts that have approved these practices are out of date. Um, and they also make the uh, argument uh, almost paradoxically that if you go back in time that the founders of the Constitution and the writers of the Fourth Amendment certainly would not have approved uh, such massive, uh, as they would say, dragnet uh, kind of search because it was this very sort of thing that the colonists were fighting and went to war for in the American Revolution. The team arguing against the motion, John Yu and Stuart Baker, um, they, are, they are making the technical point initially, look, uh, we've won this debate because the Supreme Court has already settled this question. Um, 
But in the spirit of the exchange of ideas here, they do go on to say that in wartime, the stakes themselves, uh, American lives, the threat of terror attack, uh, make the reasonableness issue, put the reasonableness issue in a different light, that the Fourth Amendment bans unreasonable search and seizures and that the government program uh, of collecting only data about when and where and who we called is not unreasonable when put in uh, up against the, the stakes of needing to save American lives and defeat our enemies. So those are some of the arguments that we've heard. And um, I, I want to I say two things at the outset. We really do want to make this a, an argument about the constitutionality of this practice. And so, Stuart, I'm, I, I, will, I will say, although technically you're, you're right, let's, let's look at this from the point of view that, that you know, we, 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 th- this is the Supreme Court, and we've gone back in time, and this side is arguing that the thing is unconstitutional, and you're arguing that it's constitutional. And I want to say to Alex in particular, because you rested so much of your case on the kind of world we would have and that we wouldn't like that, that really isn't the point that we're debating here tonight. We're really debating about whether the government has the right to do this under the Constitution, not to say that the kind of world is irrelevant, but to, to try to stick to this question of, of whether um, it stands uh, under the Fourth Amendment or not, which um, I, I, I know that, Elizabeth, you very clearly were saying it was not. So let's, let's get to some of the specifics that we heard about this. Um, first of all, th- there's this whole notion of what is a search. And um, Stuart Baker, your opponents have said that basically uh, the NSA sweeping up an enormous amount of information, regardless of the fact that they're not actually listening to what's in the phone calls, is by itself constitutes a search and therefore gets us right into the area that is protected by the Fourth Amendment. So I'd like to talk, have you respond to that and then go back to Alex to talk about this issue of when is a search a search and when is it not? So if, um, if John keeps a diary and the police want it, if they come to his house and take it, that's a search. If he gives it to his mom and she takes it home and the police come and knock on her door and say, would you give us a copy of John's diary? That's not a search. Uh, What the government has done here is they have gone to people to whom these records have been given by the people who made the phone calls. We all know the phone company needs to know what numbers we're dialing in order to to deliver the call to the right place. So we have shared this information already. We can't expect to be able to claim a property right against search wherever that information goes. So the underlying principle of what constitutes privacy vis-a-vis sharing the information with other people works how? In other words, the the Supreme Court's decision essentially stood for the proposition that you have a much diminished expectation of privacy once you've knowingly shared information with someone else, especially if the government gets it from that person. Okay, Alex Abdo, to respond to that. I think that reflects a pre-digital understanding of our privacy, and I think that's one of the fundamental problems with our opponent's position, uh, is that they ask a very simplistic question that may have made sense in the 1960s and 1970s, but doesn't make any sense today where the vast majority uh, of our communications have to be shared with an intermediary, not because we're voluntarily giving the information over to AT&T, or not because we're voluntarily giving it over to Yahoo or Microsoft or Gmail, but because we have to in order to use those communication systems. And I, and I think it would, be, it would you know, undermine the security of all those systems and undermine our right to privacy to say very simplistically uh, that, that this doctrine, this notion of sharing, is an on-off switch. That is never how uh, our judges have applied it. It's not how the Supreme Court has applied it. Uh, and if you look at recent cases, you're seeing a Supreme Court struggling with how to update privacy law to account for this 
dramatic change in, in technology. And, uh, and, you know, and, the essence, and the essence of the change is what? I mean, we all know that the essence of the change is that they can get a lot more of this kind of data. And, and 25 years ago, when this law was passed, they could, they could look at one person and then phone numbers he dialed over a couple of days. Now we know that they can get millions for a lifetime, essentially. What, why does that make a difference in the, in, the, in the impact on the kind of information? I, I think that's part of the change. The other part of the change, before, if I can say before answering your question, is that it is now not really possible to meaningfully participate in society without using the communications platforms that all the tech companies have brought to us. Uh, and so it's necessary to, uh, as, uh, as Stuart would say, share this information, but it's not of the same voluntary nature that, uh, that I think our opponents rely on. Okay, John, you, your response to that? Yeah, I think we ought to be cautious of these efforts to claim just because some new technology came along, we have to throw out all the rules that we've had before and replace it with some uniform, general, radical, simple rule. Life is not that easy, and life is not that simple, especially when the technology is so new. We need to learn more about how all these technologies work, how they interface with law enforcement. Then, slowly, incrementally, we should be making decisions of what the best rules are, rather than just saying, oh, because automobiles have come around, we can throw out all the rules about horse accidents, because those are horses and these are cars. Instead, we should try to analogize from the things that came before, using common sense. That's what the Constitution seems to say. It says reasonable searches and seizures. Elizabeth Wadja. Well, you know, John mentioned in his remarks, he said that he didn't want to leave these decisions to uh, you know, five uh, old guys on the Supreme Court, but I'm sorry to say that you're behind the times of nine justices on the Supreme Court, however old they are, because just a few months ago at the end of last term, a unanimous Supreme Court told us that digital is different in a case that applied the Fourth Amendment to smartphones. Different how? Well, you know, I think there's a great analogy that Chief Justice Roberts used. He said that um, saying that a ride on a horse and buggy is the same as uh, taking a rocket ship to the moon makes about as much sense as using some of these old precedents and rules when applied to the digital age. Because the type, the quantity, and quality of information that can be gained in the digital age is just so different that it actually makes a real difference. I, for I the want to let Stuart Baker respond, but can you take one sentence to say different how? So what, how does it add up to a different kind of experience? So before, when you would have this information that was available to the public, it was sort of a random tile that could give you a very small glimpse into a person's life. But because of the quantity of data that can be accessed very easily, this came up in a case about GPS locators, it adds up to a mosaic that provides a rather clear picture of a person's life in a way that you couldn't okay. in a pre-digital age. That was two sentences with a parenthetical phrase, <laughs> but, but it was pretty tight. Like a semicolon. <laughs> Stuart Baker. So the one thing that we're acting as though is that if we don't have the Supreme Court ride to our rescue, all of this data is suddenly going to be available to the government under no restrictions whatsoever. Uh, since Smith against Maryland was decided, the, uh, Congress has, has enacted and amended the rules on electronic uh, searches four or five times. We can rely on democracy to make these decisions. The average age, by the way, of the Supreme Court, 70 years. I, you know, I don't know about you. I am a boomer, and I'm sick of having boomers make these decisions. I, it, there's no reason why we should ask the Supreme Court Stuart, to though, step do, in and does, decide does, this. Does your, does your defense of the position that, that there are safeguards in place actually defend the constitutionality? Yes. The, uh, my, my argument is we should not turn the, 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 right now. Mm -hmm. These uh, uh, records 
are not subject to Fourth Amendment analysis under Smith against Maryland. The argument is, well, that's going to open us all in a digital age. I, to I know you've all alluded to Smith against Maryland. Just, to, just take three sentences, or I can do yeah, it. I can do it. Okay. So, in Smith against Maryland, uh, the cops were investigating um, calls to a woman, harassing calls to a woman. They got a pen register on a suspect's phone. What is a pen register? A pen register records all the numbers that he dials. And it does it down at the phone company. Down at the phone company. And uh, essentially they had call data records on this guy for several days until they realized, yes, he's making the bad calls. Uh, and the court said, uh, yeah, so, well, so he, he could, should So know. I'll break it down a little bit. He, so he got arrested. She picked him out in the lineup, said, that's the guy. He got right. busted. And his lawyer said, that was an unfair search because you, you tapped me without a warrant. You didn't have a warrant. And the for, court for said, well, that's when you a dial a phone number, that's not a secret because you that's just right. dialed it. You put it out into the world. Okay, so that's what the court is using now to say that the metadata is not a secret. Do I have that? pretty much nailed, Alex? I think that's right. Yeah. Can, can okay. I respond to one thing that yes. Sarah just said? So, and, and something that uh, Professor you said as well, which is that we shouldn't trust courts to safeguard our individual rights. And I think that a, a, reflects a fundamental misunderstanding about what the Bill of Rights is about. The Bill of Rights was designed to withdraw from political majorities the decisions that affect the individual rights of people who can't protect themselves through political constituencies. Uh, it was precisely for that purpose that the Constitution and our framers placed th- uh, those decisions in uh, unelected, uh, tenure-protected judges so that they could safeguard individual rights. And so I, th- I think the wrong answer is to say we should leave our individual rights to Congress, uh, particularly this Congress or the next. John, you do you want to respond to that? <laughs> well, I... By the way, vocal uh, approbation is fine with us. Um, <laughs> Uh, we, we like our audience at home who's listening to know that you're here. We, we only discourage booing and hissing. See, this is just shows John is not from Philadelphia because we know in Philadelphia we boo and hiss our hometown players more than the opposing side. And Santa Claus, I heard. <laughs> now, the snowballs for Santa Claus if you're old enough to be here as I was. No, to no, see I'm that. from the Bronx, but I'm showing enormous restraint. <laughs> As I often say, you know, nothing the opponents could say would be as mean as what my Korean mother would say to me. So nobody laughed at that. <laughs> I guess that's just Korean humor. So um, we know she's here. We don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, you don't want to be in trouble with my she's mother. Really scared. So uh, look, you know, there's a number a number of things to say, most of which I've forgotten because I was uh, telling jokes. But the problem with this view of the Bill of Rights is. Uh, I quite agree. The Bill of Rights is there to protect minority rights. I, I missed it in their presentation. I didn't hear any discussion of any minorities who are being singled out here for mistreatment by the government. This is a surveillance program that works on everybody. In fact, it, there is no way to know what the race or gender of the people whose data is being collected for. If there were a case, if it was targeted, say, for example, the IRS was only considering the applications of conservative groups or liberal groups for tax debts, that would be targeting a minority group, right? That would be targeting someone because of their ideology, right? Then I think you would have a much better claim. This is not about... Let me, let me take that argument while you're on it and take it to Elizabeth Weidger. What about that, that John's, John's argument since the process is not discriminatory as far as we know? Well, that would be relevant if we were making a claim under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But instead, we have a specific text in the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits these types of searches. So that's what's violated, not equal treatment under the All right, let me stop you and go back to John. Yeah, Did I, she just I, slam you down? Or no, not? I disagree. <laughs> I, I, Sorry, I, 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 I disagree because, uh, you know, again, 
the text of the Fourth Amendment says that people have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And so that's why you have to look at democracy. My claim is not that this means this is not to be done by judges. It's that all of us in society have a view on what's reasonable and unreasonable. It's not a monopoly of five justices of the Supreme Court to tell us as a society what is reasonable and unreasonable. And we have, as Stuart mentioned, in previous cases, looked to Congress and the president and the courts all together, picked by us in elections to decide what's a reasonable search when telephones came along. And, let, and, and, let me the take, and, and on the point of unreasonable unreason, versus unreasonable, Alex Abdo, I want to take to you something that John you said in his opening remarks. He, he made the argument that the program is not unreasonable. See, I, I think basically his context was being in a, in, a, in, a, in a war situation, that it's a security situation, that reasonableness is weighed in the context of larger consequences. And his argument was if it's saving lives, if it's defeating the enemy, then it stops being so unreasonable because of the stakes involved. I, I think that's a, uh, uh, a narrow way of viewing the Constitution, but it's not particularly surprising that Professor Yu makes that argument. Uh, you know, Professor Yu made the same argument with respect to uh, the, the fact of wartime authority trumping individual protection against torture, and, and I think that's a wrong way of viewing the Constitution. I, that's the, not correct, by the way, but go ahead. I, we can discuss that another time. But, but in any event, the, the question of well, let's whether... Let's discuss it now. Actually, I mean, I think let's, let, let's have you withdraw that. I'll withdraw that. I apologize. I mean, John, because I, <laughs> I don't want to take time on that, and, and we're, we're going to withdraw it uh, to let you make a different point if you, if you would like to. Because we, we, we really don't want to go back to people's records on other issues because it becomes an irresistible rabbit hole that we go down. So I would just ask you to, sure. to not base the argument on what John's done in the past. So I, I think the Constitution protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures, and the initial question that you need to ask is whether it is ever reasonable for the government to engage in bulk collection. And the problem with going down that route uh, is we would end up in a society that the framers could not possibly have envisioned, which is that the government would uh, always, for good purpose, it would say, collect vast quantities of information about people who have done absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, but even if you think that's an acceptable way of thinking about the Constitution, uh, the problem with our opponent's arguments is that two separate review groups, both with classified uh, access to classified evidence, who've now reviewed the cases that, uh, that they're relying on to suggest that this program is necessary, have concluded that it simply isn't necessary, that the government could have accomplished its interest through the targeted use of uh, uh, surveillance orders to these companies or to other companies. Stuart Baker. And after that, I want to go to questions. So uh, if you can prepare your questions, I will come to you, and I'll explain how we do that after Stuart speaks. So the notion that you can somehow figure out, well, there's something like mass data collection, and we'll just say that can't be collected without implicating the Fourth Amendment is just as uh, Alex said, uh, superseded by the march of technology. There are a million subpoenas today for call data records for law enforcement purposes. This means tens of millions of records in the hands of government agencies uh, in, on a, what amounts to a mass basis. There are 10 million suspicious activities, uh, reports filed by financial institutions about their bank account holders because they want the government to know about what's happening. Is that mass collection? There are 4.5 million medical records reviewed by Medicare, your medical records and ours, uh, reviewed by Medicare looking for fraud every day. 
All of those things are things that serve important anti-fraud purposes that the United States government is pursuing. If we suddenly start to say it's mass collection, it must be a constitutional problem, we're going to have a line-drawing problem to beat every line-drawing problem we've ever seen. Okay, I'd like to go to, you, to the audience for questions, and the way that I would like it to work is if you raise your hand, uh, there will be microphones uh, uh, circulating up and down the aisle. Uh, I'll call on you. Uh, wait till the a mic is handed to you. Stand up. Tell us your name and hold the mic about this distance from your mouth so that we can hear you uh, over the air. And the one thing I would urge is to keep in mind that we're trying to do the debate of the, of the constitutional nature here. And I would also urge you not to debate with the debaters, um, but to, uh, to ask them a question that you think that they should be debating among themselves. So any hands go up on that? Sir, right, uh, uh, right be the, the farther back one, yes, two rows from the back. Thank you. If you can tell us your name, please, too. Hi, my name is John Sorrett. I have a question for um, uh, the group uh, for the motion. If we find ourselves in a situation, and I hope this never happens, that um, terrorist attacks uh, significantly increase, would that change your argument, or that's irrelevant to this, this question? That's a great question. No, I don't think Alex I would. Abdel. Everyone to have reviewed uh, the way that the NSA should go about its business says it should go about it in a targeted way, and that the key to protecting the country is not through suspicionless surveillance of everyone, but through very targeted efforts directed at those uh, who are doing us harm. I, I think that's, that's the lesson of the two review groups who reviewed this program. Uh, that's the conclusion that the president himself has come to, and I think that's what's also consistent with our constitutional values. So you're saying it's not, never going to be a matter of degree. It's an absolute. I, I think when you're talking about bulk collection, yes. Let me go to the other side just to see if they have a response to that. You've already to some degree answered that, but John, you, if you want to take it on. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that shows how unreasonable the other side's position is, is that no matter how much the security threat goes, they are unwilling to bend and allow certain kinds of searches. I think that choice is actually allowed to us under the Fourth Amendment by saying reasonable searches and seizures. I was there on 9-11, and we were confronted by an enemy that snuck into the country, communicated by email and phone calls. How did we even find them? How do we even know they were all hijackers together? We looked at exactly this kind of data to piece it together. Of course, this is going to be the way we would need to catch such people in the future. Look at what our great terrorist enemy now is. I'm really worried, actually. I think the threat is much greater now than it was earlier because we have an enemy, ISIS, that controls a lot of territory, population, sophisticated weapons, and is beheading Americans abroad, and we are doing very little about it. I think we need to have such kind of pro programs in effect to stop them from getting over here. Okay. Yeah. You know, the, the more you're using your 9-11 credential, the more I'm thinking I have to unleash Alex's <laughs> critique from before. <laughs> but uh, Elizabeth Wydra. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, um, especially when you bring up a lot of these very frightening scenarios, I think it's important to remember that, as Alex pointed out earlier, these bipartisan commissions that have access to the classified data have not found that that this bulk data collection has led to the prevention of an imminent attack. You know, I think I, I might take a slightly softer position than Alex on this in the sense that the Fourth Amendment doctrine does allow for um, exigent circumstances, exceptions to a warrant requirement, and that's, but that's very, very narrowly circumscribed. So you, you don't know, think we're in that... We're, you don't think we're in that now? I don't think we're in that now, and I don't think the bipartisan commissions that have access to this classified information think that we're in that position now. Let me go to another. Do, unless you want to respond, like, uh, Stuart, go ahead. Uh, let, let me just take uh, briefly. The last 10 years, this program has not produced an enormous number of successes. It is designed for a, 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 an attack from a safe haven that is carefully planned. 
We've had 10 years in which we've wiped out the safe havens. We put boots on the ground in Afghanistan to make sure that al-Qaeda could not plan attacks there. Only now is there a new safe haven where we can't put boots on the ground. We are in a different world, and the idea that uh, this program might not have been particularly uh, effective in a time when there was no safe haven does not tell us what it will be like in the future. I want to remind you we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And we're taking audience questions. Sir. Hello. My name is Rusty Faircloth. Um, one of the premises of – I'm sorry. This is for the against side. Um, one of the premises of your argument is due to the fact that there's a third party involved due to the fact that you released this information to the telephone carriers themselves, therefore it's not a violation of privacy. Is there a subject matter of which you would disagree with that idea? For example, bank records or medical records. You have to submit those to your insurance. Do you believe the federal government should be able to amass every transaction I do digitally with a credit card on any account because I go through a merchant? So uh, let me try that. Uh, uh, Briefly, no, I don't believe that the government should be able to access willy-nilly all of those records. And I support legislation that Congress has passed that, by and large, already addresses financial privacy, already addresses the privacy of your email, already addresses the privacy of your medical records. Congress has stepped into uh, this uh, area and we want them there that it is too hard to let the Supreme Court every 35 Stuart, years Stuart, decide what it wants. I think what the relevance of the question is, would those things be a violation of the Fourth Amendment? No, I think it's a bad idea to bring the court in and let this stuff be but, but, decided once but, for no, 40 But they years. would not violate the Fourth Amendment. I clearly. would not. Okay. Do you guys want to take a crack at that or we can move on? Let's move on. Any women want to ask questions? <laughs> Thank you. Then I'll come back to my gender. Sally, and I, my question is for the against group. What would you say to the uh, statement that the, what, you're do, what you propose is actually destroying our country in the way that our enemies would um, approve of? And that, I, I, that, I'm going to pass on that question because it's more of a policy and okay. sentiment question and not about the constitutionality, unless you want to try to rephrase. How would you – would this actually uh, – it's actually attacking our constitution to um, – reverse our, our rights as in the Fourth Amendment. I, I'm going to pass again okay. with respect, because I, I think I they kind of, I think it. they've addressed that, they, that they, they're, they solidly think it's constitutional. Sir, right down front. Uh, you, uh, you need the mic to come to you and to stand up. It's going to come from your right side. Thanks. This is uh, <clears throat> addressed to the against panel. <clears throat> How does the use of burner phones uh, affect your reasonableness argument? The what kind of phones? Burner phones. Phones you buy at Walmart and aren't traceable. Those are called burner phones? Yes. I feel very street savvy now. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I'm going to get some burner phones right after the debate here. This is is all on the wire and the streets of Philadelphia. You know he's called burner phones. I guess I'm in Philly. John, you. (laughs) You elitist New Yorker. (laughs) So So, let me me try this. 
burner phones make it much easier for people to make one phone call and throw the phone away, buy another phone, make one phone call. It makes it much harder to find people, uh, and it's certainly impossible to say, I have a wiretap order on this person and to be able to get all of their calls. But what you can do, again, you can use the pattern of their calls to identify people as suspect. If you use a burner phone to call a safe house in Yemen, uh, the government ought to be able to find out about that call and then to look at the pattern of calls. Okay, I'm going to stop you because the the, the question really was a huge softball to your side because, yeah. But I I wanted to let the other side take take a crack at that question because you're being presented again and again with situations where uh, the defense of the nation... is, the, the case is increasingly made that the defense of the nation uh, would be enhanced, it is argued, by the ability to do these searches or seizures um, and, and, uh, and that, therefore, that affects the reasonableness issue. Um, do, uh, let's hear from Alex on this one. Yeah, I think, again, one of the easiest responses is simply that this issue has been analyzed by two bipartisan groups of individuals who have concluded that we can engage in targeted collection of information to solve these problems. You know, one of the repeated uh, hypotheticals has come from uh, from Stewart about uh, the safe house in Yemen. And in that particular example, which was the pre-9-11 one uh, uh, that NSA supporters have used as uh, the best example for why they need this program, both com- or, uh, maybe it was just one of the commissions, but one of the commissions very carefully studied that particular example. Uh, and they decided that it would have been very easy for the government to have used targeted surveillance requests to uncover the link between the safe house in Yemen uh, and the parties on the USN because they had the phone number of the safe house. Indeed, they had to have the phone number because that's the only way they knew about the safe house. And they could have taken that phone number and gone to the three major telecoms in the United States and served them with this order, and they would have very quickly uncovered uh, the existence of the safe house. That's what the commission concluded, uh, and I think the same is, is likely true for, for burner phones. I, I want to bring could a I, question. Oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead, John. Do you. we so distrust ourselves that we need justices and Supreme Court to decide to know what a burner phone is and then to figure out the right rule. You know, I, I mean, the, the justices of the Supreme Court, they probably think a burner phone is something that's too hot to touch for a little while. You've got to let it cool down. <laughs> they have no idea what burner phones well, are. Well, like the be. moderator, they could just ask the question <laughs> I mean, and find out the answer is, very quickly. You know, I, do we so distrust ourselves that we can't make that decision through legislation yeah. to figure out the best way to ha- The worst thing would be if the judges set a rule down in concrete and then set our response in a way that we can't take account of evolving technologies. I think it's much better for a legislature, the executive branch, to study the problem, figure out the best responses as we go along as new technology develops. Elizabeth Wedger. Yeah, you know, we have already made this decision. We, the people, ratify the Fourth Amendment. And so I think that to make it seem like that's still in play just disregards the Constitution. But, I, you know, I want to make a point about law enforcement. And, um, you know, the Fourth Amendment does not yield to concerns of efficiency. The Supreme Court very clearly stated this just at the end of its last term when it said that if the police want to search a smartphone when it's arresting someone, that would be a great way to find really good evidence. And, in fact, they did in those cases. They have, you know, pictures of this guy with guns in front of a car that was used in a shooting. But the court said that privacy comes at a cost, and when that cost is efficiency, that must yield the concerns of the Fourth Amendment. So, you know, these justices understand technology. They have clerks, and they have said that digital is different when it comes to the Fourth Amendment and that the Fourth Amendment doesn't just yield to make things easier for law enforcement in all circumstances. I, I wanted to take note of something about how, the, how both teams have, re, have re, re, uh, responded to, uh, to actions of, uh, of our predecessors. And, Alex Abdo, you were saying we shouldn't be bound by Smith versus Maryland. It's 1979. Technology has changed. John, you, you were saying we shouldn't be bound by what we think. We're trying to imagine 
what the framers thought. That in, and to some degree, both of you are saying, let's not worry too much about the past, I think. But in, in, the, in the sort of fundamental romantic sense, I think a lot of people will find appeal to what Elizabeth Wadger was saying initially, that, that uh, the, the colonists went to war to stop this kind of, this kind of an invasive uh, search that the British, uh, that the British uh, um, government was doing at the time. Well, what is, what is, you didn't actually make a direct response to, to that somewhat sentimentally a powerful notion. No, I, would like to I mean, we wouldn't be here at something called the National Constitution Center if we didn't have a romantic vision of the Constitution and our, the revolution and our framing. And I'm someone who loves to look at the evidence from the framing in my own uh, written work, which is on sale at a very low price on Amazon.com. Uh, all you have to do is apparently look at your phone now and you'll buy, you can buy my book. Um, but the point is, is that this is exactly the same argument that are confronted by our courts all the time, too, and our government leaders, this claim you're going to overthrow the Constitution, you're making our enemies would agree what we're doing to our own country. But when they're faced with this, these claims, they have never said, oh, there's a blanket rule that we know from the framers in the search and seizure context we have to impose. You would think that they would from their description, the opponent's description of the Constitution. But think about all the places where the court has not done that. But then Metal why, detectors then, at then why not? Then why not also update your, your view of Smith versus Maryland as your opponent? They could, but, that's, uh, but they haven't done it yet. And no lower court has yet. And instead, in all, there's lots of other contexts where the court has adopted this balancing approach. I was going to say, metal detectors at airports, aren't those searches? Drunk driver checkpoints, aren't those searches? Urinalysis, drug testing for employers. I mean, there's lots of contexts, actually, where our government has uh, been allowed to conduct broad, uh, non-particularized searches that are considered fairly minimal in order to stop a great threat to public safety. If our, if our let, justices let me, don't let me just collapse, let break for I want to take one more question, but let, I just want to let Alex Abdo respond to that and take one more I question. I think it's wrong to say that our courts uh, are not grappling the question of whether Smith versus Maryland remains relevant today. Uh, not too long ago, a court of appeal said that our email is protected by the Constitution, even though we have to share it with Gmail. That's a very common-sense conclusion, but it's one that our opponents would apparently resolve by saying email is not protected because it's stored on the, party, uh, on the servers of a third party. Uh, and more recently, the Supreme Court has said, five justices have said uh, in various opinions, that uh, Smith versus Maryland may not make sense in the digital era. And it's, and it's quite obvious why, because if that were the law of the land, uh, then virtually everything we do today, uh, which is reduced to a digital trail, would be susceptible to bulk collection by the government. One last question. Sir, right in the middle there. And wait for the mic, please. Thanks. Yeah, hi, my name is Aaron. Um, I think uh, both sides gave very different definition on what the word reasonable means. I think the for side is talking about reasonableness as opposed to the public, um, and the against side is talking about reasonableness for the government. So I was hoping both sides can explain why they take their interpretation of what, what reasonable applies do, to. Do you all agree that you disagree, uh, that, you, that one of you is talking about, you're talking about reasonableness in two different contexts, or would you say your reasonableness is to both parties, both sides? both to the government and to the public. Let me, let me go yeah, I to... Think, uh, I think we're stressing different sides of the ledger. When the government, when the you. court has taken these questions, what's reasonable to I mean? They actually say we weigh the interests of the government versus privacy interests of the individual. And then all I'm saying is I think we as a society should look at all of that and balance it ourselves. My personal, I think Stuart's personal, and I think the views of the Congress and the president and many judges has been... In this context in war, the national security interest, which is the most important government interest there is, the courts have said that, and the framers said that many times, just outweigh the 
intrusion and privacy. I'm not denying there's an intrusion of privacy, but to, you know, outweigh the intrusion of privacy in collecting phone numbers, uh, phone numbers, not the calls, email addressing, not the content of emails. And a balancing act is what yes. you're saying. And let's go to Alex Abdo on that. So I would just amend Professor Yu's response on the legal question in just one way. And the Supreme Court has said that uh, reasonableness means uh, is in general a balance. Uh, except when the government can accomplish its interests in a targeted way. And in that context, the Supreme Court has always said that the government must proceed with a warrant based upon probable cause. Uh, if the government can accomplish its interests in that targeted way, it must. Uh, and, and that's not perhaps surprising. That's been our constitutional tradition since, uh, since the late 1700s, and it should continue to do so uh, today. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here's where we are. Remember how you voted just before you started hearing the arguments, because immediately after these brief closing statements, we're going to have you vote a second time. And I'll remind you that it's the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms who will be declared our winner. First, on, on to round three, closing statements from each debater in turn. They will be brief, two minutes each. First to argue, first to summarize her position in favor of the motion, mass collection of U.S. phone records, violates the Fourth Amendment, Elizabeth Wydra, Chief Counsel at the Constitutional Accountability Center. Thank you so much, John. So I think it's important to think about what we haven't heard tonight. We haven't heard any solid case for why the government needs to engage in this mass collection of Americans' phone records going on every day. As Alex said, if you make a call tonight, the NSA will know about it and have it recorded tomorrow. They haven't shown that there is a need to engage in this dragnet surveillance that offends the principles of the Constitution uh, to thwart an imminent attack. And while we have talked a lot about some of these very disturbing scenarios of terrorist activity. I think that getting back to one of the questions earlier, it is in these times of crisis. It is in those times as well as in the easy times that our principles and our devotion to our founding principles are tested. And we the people have already determined that the question of whether or not the people shall be subject to unreasonable searches and seizures is not up for debate. It is something that is enforceable in our courts, and it's something that we, the people, have decided upon many, many years ago. And in closing, I just want to get to this very odd idea, which we didn't explore anymore, about somehow that it's okay that the government just collects the information, and it's not really problematic for the Constitution if they don't actually look at it. Well, I want you to think about this before you vote again. Um, you know, if the government stationed a person to stand next to your bathtub every time you took a bath, do you think your privacy isn't invaded if the government agent stands there with his hands over his eyes the whole time? I'm going to think that you're going to think things have gotten a lot less private up in there before he looks when you're taking your bath. So I think we need to think about the collection of this information is just as bad as if they actually looked at the content, and not just that, the fact that they take this information in the first place reveals a lot of data and personal information about us Thanks, in general. Thanks, Elizabeth. With Roger, your, your time is up. Thank you very much. Our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Here to summarize his position against this motion, Stuart Baker, a partner at Steptoe & Johnson and former general counsel at the NSA. So I, th I think to vote for this motion, you have to want to change the law to 
create more privacy than current law creates. And let me explain why I give these speeches and appear here. Uh, uh, it's because I spent the 1990s advocating for a privacy and civil liberties doctrine that would separate intelligence and law enforcement because I thought that it was important that intelligence capabilities not be used, if at all possible, against ordinary American criminal suspects. I thought it sounded like a good civil liberties doctrine and we ought to change the rules so that that was the case. We created a wall. We built that wall higher and higher until in August of 2001 when we found out from intelligence sources that there were al-Qaeda operatives in the United States and the FBI law enforcement task force that had all the resources and all the people they were investigating the coal bombing said, we just heard about this. We can find these guys. They're in the United States. We'll get them. Let us at them. And they were told to sit down and shut up because this came from the intelligence side of the uh, uh, government, and they weren't allowed to do anything with it. They never did, we never did find those guys, because the intelligence agencies had very few capabilities inside the United States until they flew into the World Trade Center. I never want to live with myself again for saying, well, it sounds like a little more privacy. What the heck? Let's change the rules. How bad could it be? It could be very bad. This is not a good law to change at this time. Thank you, Stuart Baker. Our motion is mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Alex Abdo, a staff attorney at the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Thanks, John. I want to take a slightly different tack. So in 1981, it cost around $300,000 to store a gigabyte of data. Uh, By 2010, just a couple years ago, that cost had plummeted to about 10 cents. Uh, And by next year, some people estimate it'll be about 2 cents to store a gigabyte of data. Uh, And just to give you a sense of what that means for surveillance, it means that uh, that you could store the entire audio uh, from every single phone call that a single person has made over the course of an entire year uh, for about 10 cents. And by next year, it'll be about 2 cents. Uh, The result of that plummeting cost of storage is that for the first time in our nation's history, truly pervasive surveillance is possible. It will be possible for the government uh, to store not just, uh, not to keep track of not just who you email, who you call, and what websites you visit. They'll be able to make a copy of every email you send, to record every phone call you make, uh, to archive every website that you visit. Uh, And the cost has fallen so much and so dramatically that it will soon even be possible for the government to record uh, virtually every step you take once you leave the house. Uh, this is not science fiction. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a predictable result of falling storage and the proliferation of these types of surveillance devices on military fields now coming home uh, to return to us to local law enforcement. I think that's why this debate, tonight's debate, about mass collection of phone records is about so much more uh, than phone records and so much more than the NSA. Uh, if our opponents are correct, uh, it won't end with the NSA. It won't end with the FBI. And it won't end with even local law enforcement. Mass collection will be uh, the norm. And so the choice you have is whether you want to live in a free society or one in which our every movement and our every communication is tracked, uh, recorded, and stored in a database. Uh, In the past, cost was the main protection we had against that sort of world. Uh, But cost is no longer an issue. The Fourth Amendment is all we have left. Uh, And that's why I think you should vote for the motion uh, that mass collection violates the Fourth Amendment. Thank you, Alex Abdo. And that is the motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. And here to summarize his position against this motion, John Yu, professor of law at UC Berkeley and former Justice Department lawyer. 
Well, it's been a uh, great pleasure to uh, participate in this debate and try to urge you one way or the other. And, you know, we're sitting in Philadelphia. Again, I'd like to emphasize my hometown. And we're at the site of the drafting of the Constitution in the little room across the way. And this was not a perfect document. It wasn't a document that bent to one overall principle or another. One thing you get a very much a sense of if you go visit that little room or you read accounts of the Constitution is that it was the product of compromises made by practical people who wanted to create a workable government. That's why we have a crazy institution with a Senate melded with popular representation in the House. And so our Constitution does two things. It does protect rights and the right to be from unreasonable searches and seizures. But as many justices, particularly Justice Jackson, remind us, the Constitution is also not a suicide pact. It is not a document that's designed to place individual rights above the ability of our society to defend itself from foreign attack. And so that's how we are supposed to look at these kinds of questions, by the text of the Fourth Amendment and by decades and decades of Supreme Court opinions going back many, many years. What is it reasonable thing for us as a society to do? Is it reasonable to try to find al-Qaeda terrorists using these kinds of technologies, or do we think that they so outweigh our rights to privacy that judges should stop them? I would say, actually, that this is a decision where our side is arguing for a little bit of modesty and humility, that we don't have the right answer. We cannot predict the way technology will run. We can't predict everything al-Qaeda is going to do or enemy is going to do. We think that the best way to make this decision is to have an evolving standard based on what legislatures and the executive branch do, not to rely on a few judges. The other side keeps saying, what kind of society do we want to live in? I think that's for us to decide through elections, through our own choices, and not because a few judges on the Supreme Court tell us what kind of society to live in. So thank you very much, and vote for us. Thank you, John Yu. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued the best. We're going to ask you right now to go to the keypad at your seat that will register your vote. After hearing the arguments, push one if you agree with the motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Push number two if you disagree with this motion. Push number three if you remain or became undecided in the course of the debate. And we will have the readout in about a minute and a half. And while we're doing that, the first thing I want to say is uh, it's the goal of Intelligence Squared to uh, show that uh, tough discourse can be had in a civil way. And I really think these four debaters were great at that. And I want to congratulate all of them for what they did. And I also want to ask, I want to also want to thank everybody who got up and asked a question, including them, the question that I didn't take. It was not that at all it was a bad question, and we've done a couple of debates where it would have been a magical question. So you're going to have to come up to New York the next time we revisit the NSA issue, because it would be great. But to everybody who got up and asked a question, it really did move along the debate for us. So thank you for that, and congratulations. Um, we want to thank Jeffrey Rosen, of course, of the National Constitution Center for inviting us here today, and we hope that this remains a continuing series. This is our third time here, and each time the debate has just been sparkling. And this program, I want to point out, was supported by Daniel Berger Esquire Programming Fund and the Snyder Foundation for the National Constitution Center. Our gratitude to them. Round of applause, please. Thanks. We would love it if you would tweet about this debate. Um, 
the baby boomers will have all of that explained to them, how, how that works, and the burn phones. And, well, I've already tweeted this. Oh, oh okay. Uh, our Twitter handle is at IQ2US and at ConstitutionCTR for Center, ConstitutionCTR. The hashtag is Fourth Amendment. We will be partnering with the NCC and the Richmond Center at Columbia University next spring, debating the president's uh, constitutional war powers. But until then, our next uh, regularly scheduled debate will be at the Kaufman Center in New York. That's on Wednesday, October 22nd. Our motion there is income inequality impairs the American dream of upward mobility. So it's a 90-minute train ride. We hope we'll see some of you. Um, we will have an economist and a one percenter on each side of that debate. For the motion, Elise Gould. She's a senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute. Um, and her partner is Nick Hanauer. He's an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. Against them, Edward Kennard. He's a former partner at Bain Capital. And his partner is Scott Winship, who is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. You can get tickets for all of our debates at our website, iq2us.org. And we've recently launched a quite elegant little uh, iPhone and uh, Android app for Intelligence Squared. It will let you see what our debates are coming up. It will let you vote on our debates. It will let you hear all of the nearly 100 debates that we've put on since 2006. And you can watch the live stream of debates you can't get to on uh, our website, iq2us.org or listen to the debates on NPR stations across the country. Okay. Oh, one thing I need to ask you, because last time, and I don't know, John, you, if it's a Philadelphia thing, but some people walked out with our keypads. <laughs> so, I, I think for, they're for sale right outside. <laughs> so, uh, and they were on eBay. Um, we just want to ask, make sure that you leave those at your seat. They're, they're, they're not take-homes. Okay. Okay, so it's all in. I have the final results now. Remember, you have voted twice, once before the debate, and again, after hearing the argument, and the team whose numbers have moved the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So let's look at the first vote on the motion. Mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. Before the debate, 46% agreed with the motion. 17% were against the motion. 37% were undecided. So those are the first results. You need to move the numbers most by percentage point terms to win this debate. Let's look at the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 66%. They went from 46 to 66%, picking up 20 percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote was 17%, second 28%. They pulled up 11 percentage points, but it's not enough. The debate won by the team arguing for the motion, mass collection of U.S. phone records, violates the Fourth Amendment. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared. We'll see you next time.